Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Thanks for joining me on the analysis.news. We're going to continue our series of conversations with Sheer Heber on Palestine, on Israel. And today we're going to talk about BDS and other issues connected with international uh, activities, campaigns and uh, strategies and so on. So come back in a second and don't forget the donate button, please. So once again, now joining us to discuss the state of Israeli society and politics. And in this episode, a little more of the international element is Sher Hever. He's a political economist living in Heidelberg, Germany. Sher was born and raised in Jerusalem. He lived in Tel Aviv and Sterot, which I'm sure I pronounced incorrectly. Moved to Germany in 2010. His recent book is The Privatization of Israeli Security. Thanks for joining us again, Sher. Thanks for having me, Paul. Let's start with this. So persuade me that BDS is a good tactic. Now, who the hell am I? You don't have to persuade me, but I'm interviewing, so here it is. So let me tell you where I start with on this. Um, First of all, somewhat of an open mind on it, but I lean in this direction, which goes like this. I think boycotting, divestment, sanctions against Israel Does Israel deserve such treatment? Yes, I think that's beyond my any shadow of doubt for me. Israel deserves such a campaign because it is an apartheid occupying state and so on. Is it an effective campaign? Is it the best way to marshal international public opinion And or two, is it really effective economically? Is it really going to cause so much trouble economically that it will change a basic policy direction of the Israeli state, no matter which party's in power? So let me start with the second one. And I'm going to go really fast here and then it's over to you. I don't, I've certainly seen no evidence that even though there has been some economic consequences, Uh, It's not without some actual real effect. It's not just public opinion. Some of the the sanctions or divestment and, you know, some countries that are refusing to buy certain products and so on. It has an effect, but I don't see it having an effect that's actually going to change the course of, of the Israeli state and the apartheid state and so on. So let me go back to the first thing, marshalling international public opinion. I think it confuses things because when I hear... This, this campaign against Israel, I say to myself, I say, okay, sure, Israel deserves it. But so do the Saudis, you know, at, at the, in, at, you know, at the very least for what they're doing in Yemen, but even for a whole lot of other things. But most importantly, the United States deserves it. Uh, the, the, you know, you know and, and, and no country has caused more havoc in the world and far more destruction in the world the United States has created than Israel. And of course, we know Israel couldn't even do what it's doing without being enabled by the United States. So why not boycotting and sanctioning? So I, I get it that it wouldn't mean very much, you know, in a real economic way. Uh, the American economy is too big. It's too powerful. You could, no, no, you'd never get any European country even mildly coming in on it. Uh, but my problem with it is it's it kind of bolsters the argument that this critique of Israel, the opposition, is anti-Semitic. Why are you picking on Israel when you could be picking on some of these other countries that do just as bad or even worse things sometimes? Um, 
and that and that I think that is an such an important point versus, for example, an international campaign that calls for one person, one vote, uh, which is you know a real call for genuine democracy. And I know that's a demand of BDS, I think, although I think it's not clear because BDS isn't totally agreed on whether it's pro two state or a one state or so on. So I, I don't think that one person, one vote message comes out very clearly. So at any rate, I, I'm left kind of on the fence, like, you know, in a moral way, sure. It, does Israel deserve it? Sure. And, uh, but is it effective? And, is there, and would there not be? And also, I, when I was in the West Bank and Ramallah and such, and I was talking to activists who were very involved uh, in, in promoting BDS externally, they were at least the people I was was talking to, and these were some of the leading people promoting BDS. They were less involved in actually developing a different kind of politics in Palestine. And even though they were fed up, and I think most Palestinians are fed up both with the with uh, Fatah and Hamas. I mean, if if there was a really good alternative, I, I don't. I'm sure people would drop support for uh, Fatah and Hamas. If they if they could, but I found some of the activists, at least I thought that would be the kind of people that could build such a thing, were very focused on this external BDS. Now it's very easy for me to say what I just said sitting here in you know La La Land, Toronto, uh, because it may well be you try to do that in Palestine and you get either attacked by Fatah, Hamas, or most importantly by the Israeli armed forces. So I don't know what's really possible. You created a very uh, concise list of some very important points that I think uh, emerge from misconceptions about BDS. And you're asking me about BDS at the wrong time, really, because uh, after seeing what happened in the last two weeks in Palestine and the way that Hamas was able to get a lot of public support in Palestine, there is no stronger opponent to BDS than Hamas, because Hamas is saying, if you want to end Israeli occupation and apartheid, the only way to do that was with armed force. Let's put aside all of those civil liberty uh, movements and, and uh, mm -hmm. all of these uh, nonviolent protests and nonsense, and let's use weapons. And Hamas gained a lot of points now. So uh, I think that that was a blow for BDS. We, uh, we people who are supporting BDS and active in BDS, we have to prove that BDS can be effective as well. One misconception, I think, that really creates a lot of uh, problems with understanding what BDS is, is the idea that BDS is a punishment. When you use the word deserve, it has nothing to do with it. Because um, when, you, when the Israeli military kills a family in Gaza, destroys a whole family, and they're making sure that there are no survivors so that nobody's left to talk to the press. No survivor who can say that how they lost all their uh, family members. And I wish I was making this up, but this is from an article by Amira Haas that really found evidence of this, of, of erasing families. Then I'm sorry that boycott is boycotting Israeli avocados is not the answer and is not a punishment that fits the crime. You know, it, there is no, there, it just uh, is not relevant. The point of the BDS movement is not to punish Israelis. The point of the, Israeli, of the BDS movement is to create political change and to create a sense of awareness among Israelis that things are not normal. They can't just go on with their lives and uh, there, there's going to be 
uh, occupation there, apartheid here, uh, murder families there, and we're just going to drink our coffee and, and everything is fine. So the BDS movement makes that impossible or tries to make it impossible. And I think in many ways it also succeeds. But uh, once the political situation changes, once there is really a, a democratic system, either one person, one vote in one country or in two countries, it doesn't matter. Uh, but what does matter is that at that point, we're going to talk about holding the war criminals to account. Nobody's going to say, oh, because we boycotted your avocados uh, back in the uh, 10 years ago, then you're not going to go to jail for bombing families right now. So let's let's put aside the whole punishment scheme. Let me just clarify. I'm, I'm not talking about punishment for some sake of a morality play here. It's just the the argument is yeah. that Israelis are, are besieged by anti-Semitic uh, Palestinians, Arabs and anti-Semites in the West, including people like you and me, who are supposed to be self-hating Jews and puts us in the anti-Semitic camp. And and so the idea of, of, of BDS, I'm saying, can play into that. Uh, so I, I'm not I'm not saying BDS is simply to punishment. I, I assume BDS, it's not is I mean you're saying to disrupt Israeli lives, but it's also to marshal public opinion so people talk about why there needs to be BDS. Yeah, but it's not to disrupt their lives so much as to to disrupt their their sleep, to disrupt their relaxation or the, their obliviousness to what's happening right under their nose. And it's because because then I'm getting to the point where you said what kind of, of economic impact BDS, can, BDS has and can have. Very little, very little. There has never been an attempt by the BDS movement to destroy the Israeli economy or even to damage it. Um, if we're talking at uh, reducing the Israeli overall exports by 2%, for example, because of BDS activities, which I think is doable, we're close to that. Um, you know, there are some years where, where exports can be down 4% and another year uh, up 4%. That's not going to change anything in the long term. But if there, but if it's going to be on the Israeli newspapers, we uh, exports are down 2% this year because of BDS. That in itself is explosive. When the RAND Institute, not exactly my kind of political organization, mentioned uh, what, why is it in Israel's interest to have peace? Because um, if there would be a two-state solution, then the economy would grow by $100 billion. But also, if there is no two-state solution, then the BDS could also cost the Israeli economy something like $15 billion. And they published this report, and all the Israeli media focused on the $15 billion and not on the $100 billion, right? Because that hurts to think that somebody is going to... Um, to look at the Israeli brand and be disgusted with the stories that come with it and say, this is a state that commits crimes and I don't want to buy their products because of, of what this state represents, hurts feelings of Israelis who want to see themselves as some kind of European enclave in the Middle East, as if uh, they are float, flying on, on some kind of European cloud and not really part of the of the area where they're in. And it put and this is how BDS puts them back on the ground and reminds them where they are and what is happening around them. So I think that is very important. And indeed, you've said BDS doesn't uh, isn't very clear on the issue of one state or two states. That's very intentional, of course, because BDS is not really something Palestinians can do. Palestinians in Israel-Palestine 
Um, you know, one one uh, friend of mine who's a Palestinian businessman, Sam Bahur, said, "I I own a supermarket, and I decided not to have any products from the illegal Israeli colonies in the West Bank in my supermarket." But then my friend said, "Well, what about Israeli products? Not just from the colonies, from inside Israel." And he said, "Well, then I I have to close my supermarket because." importing goods from outside is so difficult. Uh, Israel is putting so many obstacles. So if, so Palestinians have to eat. They're going to have to buy Israeli products. But people in Europe, in North America, in uh, Middle East countries and, and East Asia and Africa and, and Latin America, they want to show solidarity with Palestinians. They want to do something useful. They shouldn't be talking about one or two states. They shouldn't be talking about Hamas and Fatah. That's none of their business. They, they shouldn't tell the Palestinians what kind of political solutions they need. That's why BDS avoids these questions and says all the, the three goals of BDS or the, the three demands that say when these demands are met, we're not going to boycott anymore. One, ending the occupation. Two, equal rights to all citizens. Three, right of return of Palestinian refugees. If these demands are all embedded in international law and uh, have nothing to do with politics, really. I mean, there's no political party in the Palestinian um, spectrum that rejects those rights. And there is no political party in the Israeli spectrum that accepts those rights. So uh, it's very clear that this is not a political divide, but it is a, a question of, of basic human rights and, and civil rights and international law. That's why I think um, we, should, we should also put that aside this question of, of what's the political role of BDS as a, as a movement. But when we're talking about the impact of BDS, why am I still hopeful? Well, um, first of all, I want to be hopeful. You know, I, I want BDS to succeed because I do think that no matter what happens, one day Palestinians will be free. One day the uh, apartheid system in Israel will collapse. It has to collapse. Uh, and it's unsustainable, it's riddled with holes, it's already in the process of collapsing. But the question is, what is going to, to, to be the, the last blow that drags it down? And Hamas is saying, we have that last blow. We have this rocket that can make Israelis fear for their lives and, and they have to close the airport for a few days in fear. And many of them are going to leave the country and eventually we're going to... Um, to uh, uh, defeat the Israeli military, we're going to uh, uh, topple the, the Zionist regime, if, if I'm using their language, and there's going to be some kind of Islamic state. And that's that's horrible. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want that. Well, it's never going to happen. They're absolutely dreaming if they think that's a real thing. And by the way, I, I, I don't well, accept that, I, that people uh, who aren't Palestinian can't have views on the Palestinian politics. We have views on every other country's politics. Why can't we have that on Palestine? I, no, you yeah, can have I views. can say so. You can have views, of course. But, but the point is that the BDS movement is a, is a solidarity no, I'm not, Yeah, I understand the confines of BDS itself. Yeah. I wasn't critiquing BDS yeah. for not taking a position on two states or one state. I, I, that wasn't my point. I was just saying that, that the messaging, because BDS has those limitations, and I, I'm not saying for BDS it's wrong. I'm just saying because of those limitations, the message is confusing to people who don't get the nuances of all this, whereas one person, one vote is a pretty clear message. You know, I think it's never a good idea to um, underestimate people's intelligence. 
<laughs> That's oh yeah. Come 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 visit the United States for a little while. Never mind. Come come visit yeah, Ontario. But, but Look at our premiere. Come on. I I. <laughs> I 74 that, million uh, people the, voted. The, now, it's got nothing to do with intelligence. 74 million people voted for Donald no. Trump, and they're not dumb. It's got nothing to do with intelligence. No, exactly. And and understand. And, and if you try to explain that they voted for Trump because they're dumb, you're not going to be very effective no, in opposing of not. Uh, the, those right-wing populists like Trump. I mean, Trump is, is not the president anymore, but we have a lot of right-wing populist leaders around the world, not least of which is Netanyahu himself. And the people who vote for him are also not dumb. So I think we don't need to dumb down the message of BDS. The message of BDS is complicated. It's true. They have these three demands. It's more than one demand. They explain that uh, the BDS movement is not going to create a political party and, and dictate the kind of solution. And they're not interested in solutions. They're interested in rights. Okay, that is uh, that takes a little bit of thinking to understand the the shift from solutions to rights. I agree, but I I, I think people are capable of that, and I think that um, people can also understand that the act of protest that BDS creates can have an impact, even if it doesn't mean that the Israeli GDP is going to to shrink because of it. So you don't have to imagine uh, you know creating poverty and hunger in Israel by BDS. Nobody wants that really. Uh, and uh, you, you have to imagine that Israelis are put into a, a into a corner where they have to acknowledge that their system is unjust and to answer for it. Maybe. maybe. I mean, uh, to me, the most positive one of the most positive effects of BDS has been on university campuses where there's been campaigns for divestment and it's created a conversation about what's just and what's unjust. And, and, and broken through a lot of the propaganda about Israel. I mean, I, I think there's been some very positive things like that. It, it creates that kind of framing that's important. Uh, I'll just... Yeah. And Israel started a whole ministry to try to repress BDS. And they appointed a minister, Gilad Erdan. And the ministry ended up spending most of it, its budget locally to convince Israelis in, in Hebrew not to support BDS. Because really? they had zero success in, in uh, the United States, in Canada, in, in uh, the UK, and in Germany. They have a lot of allies there that constantly repeat the lies about BDS uh, being anti-Semitic. But the Israeli ministry, whenever they tried to step in and to fund local groups and do things like that, immediately th that was, oh, uh, is this like some kind of foreign lobby uh, working with espionage methods to, to influence local public opinion? It backfired. Yeah, the answer to that would have been yes, yes, uh, it is that. All right. So, yeah, all course, right. Well, let me. The ministry is now being. All right. Let me down. switch top. The ministry. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. Let, let me switch topics a little no, but, bit. But I just wanted to say uh, that what, why I want BDS to succeed because it changes the frame of the movement to uh, away from a military conflict and towards a civil liberty movement. And still, you know, I have family and friends in Israel. I don't want anyone to die. I, I think BDS. Uh, offers hope for political change, which is bloodless. And we cannot underestimate that. And I do think that there is some impact of BDS that is really changing people's opinions in Israel. First of all, Israelis know a lot about BDS. They cannot repress it anymore. And there was so many, the, the cultural boycott was so effective 
that because some some prominent artists like Roger Waters, but but of course the the list is is more than two hundred internationally known artists that cancelled performances in Israel. That the artists that do agree to cross the picket line and perform in Israel are paid double, because the Israeli authorities are subsidizing them in order to cr- to create an illusion of normalcy. <laughs> but of course, as soon as Israelis hear that they have to pay double for a ticket or that the government is subsidizing the the concert, they say, "Oh wait, why are we so different than any European country?" And they become very angry, and it. reminds them what's what's so special about their situation what that their apartheid exists um i just want to say very quickly about the anti-semitism issue uh i think that that the tremendous damage that was caused to jews around the world to you and me when the israeli government decided to play the anti-semitism card and to push the very very problematic ihra a definition of anti-semitism which is actually not really the definition and they added examples to the definition that weren't there initially and they then they said this the examples are part of it is part of a campaign to t- take world Jews hostage in order to protect the interests of the state of Israel it has been very very damaging to Jews I mean I'm speaking to you from Germany where Jewish uh, critical voices in Germany are uh, are silenced to the point that uh, a member of parliament said uh, people who uh, express uh, Jews who support BDS should not have a job in Germany uh, so this is a kind of McCarthyism that that hurts Jews and it uh, also turned Jewish communities all over the world against the state of Israel I mean, nothing has lowered the number of Zionists in the world faster than the Israeli uh, claim as if BDS is anti-Semitic. Um, now, sadly, a lot of European politicians and American politicians and, are and, and very Canadian. happy to... Yeah, and Canadian are very happy to, to say that BDS is anti-Semitic because then... They create a complete uh, equation or uh, they, they conflate Israel with Judaism and then and they conflate uh, Zionism with Judaism. And then they could say, you know what, we're pro-Zionist. Isn't it a gr- great idea that Jews have their own state somewhere in the Middle East? And w- wouldn't it be nice if all the Jews just picked up and left? And then and then you have to ask yourself, who's really the anti-Semite? Well, I, I, I won't argue with you about it, but. Uh, that's one of the reasons I think BDS confuses the messaging because there's such a campaign and it honestly it, it's fairly effective uh, this idea that opposition to Israel is anti-semitic it's getting weaker it's breaking down you're seeing especially now this recent attack on Gaza stuff in the Western media you're seeing critique that we haven't seen before in fact each attack on Gaza there seems to be a little more uh, half decent reporting. On, on just how destructive and unjust it is. Uh, but, I, but anyway, people can watch this and decide for themselves. Let, let me switch topics a little bit before we run out of time. Um, inside Israel, what is left of a, a voice that can be influenced against apartheid? Uh, I, I mean, uh, people like you, for example, I know others that... You know, they just can't live there anymore. You know, you talk about 
You don't want to call them fascist. I don't know. For me, I would call them that. These gangs that run through the streets attacking Arabs, but they also, if they're like but that example you gave, I'm not sure it's this interview or the previous one, some uh, small demonstration opposing the attacks on Gaza and the police say, if you stay here, this horde is going to come get you. Well, I'm sure that wasn't an idle threat. There, there are hordes running around that would come get them and they would be just maybe even more happy to beat up some left-wing Jews than beat up some Palestinians because then they'd be beating up the traitors. Uh, what, what happened to this kind of liberal? These hordes show that the police is not working anymore. You know, the Israeli police force is just, you know, giving up. They're not even trying to, if, if they lose control of the far right, it doesn't mean that uh, they can still control other parts of society. It means they've given up restoring law and order. I would assume like in the United States, much, you know, much of the police force, if not most, much of the military, if not most, are the far right. Yeah, that, that also exists, of course, uh, also in Israel, absolutely. But, you know, the chief of police just said uh, a few days ago, uh, there are terrorists on both sides, referring to these pogroms uh, that are happening in the so-called mixed cities. And the minister of police lashed out. Uh, just, uh, just, just hang on, just to clarify, by pogroms, you mean right-wing uh, Jews attacking Palestinians and trying to get them to leave where they're living. Yes, I mean, um, in, in Lod, for Anti-Palestinian pogroms. Yeah. Yes, but there are also yeah. uh, groups of Palestinians who, who organize and, and arm themselves and attack Jews. I wouldn't call that po pogroms because a pogrom implies that one group controls the territory and totally terrorizes the other group. And the Palestinian groups are still smaller and weaker and less organized. And the police is arresting them and they're not arresting the Jewish pogrom hooligans. Uh, um, so obviously there is there are only pogroms from one side and there are also attacks from the other side. I wouldn't call the, those pogroms. But uh, the chief of police said there are terrorists on both sides and the minister of police um, lashed out at him and called him a leftist. You know, uh, or uh, because you're not allowed to say this, but but you, if you have a situation in which the minister of police and the chief of police cannot work with each other, that that is... Uh, almost on the verge of anarchy. But you, your question was about who are inside Israeli society, the people who can be convinced. And you know what? I'm not, I, my hope does not lie with people like myself. A lot of people like myself have already left, actually. <laughs> and, and you can find them in Berlin or in New York or in Los Angeles. But um, uh, inside Israel, you have a very large group of Jewish Israelis of many different kinds of identities, and, and religious affiliations and, and uh, cultural affiliations that would call themselves right-wing or, or they would call themselves centrists, but they are very, very close to changing their opinion. They're just waiting for the political situation to change. Whenever I, I have a political argument with an Israeli, the, it always goes through three stages. First, they say, I'm lying. So then I give them proof. And then they say, um, so I didn't know that. And then I say, okay, now you know, what are you going to do about it? And then they come to the third stage where they say, actually, I did know about this, but why do you have to, to make such a fuss about it? Whose side are you anyway? And that shows that deep inside, under the, the layers of, of repression that you learn to, to develop in a colonialist society, you know 
that something is happening. You know that under the, the nice neighborhood where you live, there used to be a Palestinian village that was destroyed. And the Israelis do know that. And in South Africa, during apartheid, where more than 90% of the white population supported apartheid right until the end. And when it collapsed, everyone was suddenly always against it, right? Yeah, I was always against it. But it's not exactly a lie. It's a switch in your consciousness because you were always against it, except that you didn't dare to admit it to yourself uh, when you live in a colonial society. And I think the, most of the Israelis are actually not so far from that switch. When, when there will be a situation of one person, one vote, or, or some kind of, of democratic solution where everyone has rights, then, of course, all of these Jewish Israelis were going to say, I, I wanted peace. I just had, I was just afraid. I didn't trust the Palestinians, but, uh, but uh, yeah. There, I, I, I can't remember the year, maybe 10, 11 years ago, there was a summer of massive protests against the Israeli government by Israeli Jews on economic issues, rising prices, stagnant wages. 2011, uh, 2012. And, you know, you could see the working class and students starting to wake up about their own interests. This state wasn't serving them. And they didn't they weren't very interested in the Palestinian question one way or the other, as far as I could remember. But there was a real oppositional movement based on working class, ordinary people's interests against the state that was really not serving them very well. One, am I characterizing it correctly? Two, what happened to it? And three, is there any chance it's going to come back again? Some of the organizers of that movement, I know them personally. They are people that I know from demonstrations in the village of Bilain in the West Bank against the Israeli apartheid wall. They are definitely political people. They <laughs> Politically, they are very much where I was or I am. And they started those demonstrations, but they said these demonstrations for, for social rights are not, we're going to leave them non-political. We're going to leave the occupation out of it because then it will split the movement. We can have a, a, joint, a common denominator of protesting for basic social rights and, and that the rent is too high and uh, that people don't have access to enough jobs and education in the periphery parts of the country where you uh, can afford housing. And Netanyahu uh, was, was very worried about this movement. They said Netanyahu is going to create a security crisis in order to split our movement and break it up. And they said it in advance, and he did. He bombed Gaza and killed four people. And Hamas said, we're not going to respond. We're not playing into Netanyahu's hand. Four people were killed, but we're not sending any rockets. We're going to let this play out. But then people within the demonstrations started to say, when you talk about housing rights, do you mean also housing rights of Palestinians whose land was confiscated by the Jewish National Fund, a state-owned uh, government organization for, for Judifying or Judaizing the country? And can we also speak on the podium and raise that issue as well when we're talking about housing rights? And you could see at that moment, the movement split and crashed. That, that is the problem because people were shouting, they, they were taking their slogans from the Arab Spring. Uh, the people want the fall of the regime. That was what people were uh, shouting at Tahrir Square in Cairo. 
Yeah, they, they were shouting down with Netanyahu. It was one of the chants of the protests, they, right? They shouted, uh, Assad, Mubarak, Bibi Netanyahu. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Comparing him to Assad and to Mubarak. Uh, and so quite radical statements. But then whenever somebody came up to the stage and they said, the people want to change the regime. Who exactly is the people? Just, just so we're clear. Who is the people? <laughs> and of course, there is no answer to that. Because if you... Because most of those demonstrators, being Jewish Israelis, are part of a hegemonic group and they have privileges and, and they cannot cope with the thought of what would happen if Palestinian refugees would have the rights. What does that mean? It's a very fearful thought for somebody uh, who has been a slave, all, uh, sorry, a master all their lives, and suddenly what will happen if the slaves become free? Um, even if your intentions are good, it is a frightening thought. So I, that's why the movement collapsed. But I think once the the justice arrives or, or, or is achieved, then people will not have that fear anymore. So they will not have a reason to be so racist. But is that movement based on the economic needs of the people? Is that can has there been any sign that will arise again? Or you think this? Split will always doom it. I, I mean, there, there are always signs, but uh, Israel has more deep social inequalities than any developed country in the world. Uh, Israel has joined the OECD, the Organization of Developed Democracies. Uh, not all countries in the OECD are democracies, uh, but, you know, it has countries like Turkey and Chile and Poland, and Israel has more poverty than all these countries. And that is only if you count Israeli citizens. Of course, the OECD is not interested in Palestinians. To the OECD, they don't even exist. So uh, the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip are not even counted. Once you count them, of course, Israel is not a developed economy by any stretch of word. But but that 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 poverty is not just amongst Palestinians. Exactly, Jews exactly. living poverty in poverty among Israelis is higher than in any member of the OECD. And Israelis know that because it makes headlines every every couple of months in all the newspapers, and um, they. I think a lot of Israelis think and, and understand that there is a direct connection between living in a constant state of conflict and um, spending so much on security and its poverty. And they understand that you cannot have social solidarity when the working class is split so, so sharply across ethnic divides. And because of that, the right wing is always going to be in power and the right wing has no interest in closing social gaps. So I think Israelis understand that very well. And if you talk to right-wing Israelis and ask them, why are you willing to support a party that will make you poor? They will answer, not that they think that Netanyahu is going to make them rich. Uh, they will answer there are more important things than money. Yeah, this is, uh, this is uh, because in, uh, Netanyahu himself said it uh, in, a, in a very famous speech that he gave after the war in, with Gaza of 2014 where he said, we're going to have to increase the defense budget by 10, 10 billion. And some journalists said, but didn't you make some promises to reduce the defense budget and to invest in social needs? And then he said, life itself comes before the quality of life. Of course, not for him. There's nobody more interested in money than him. But anyway. Of course, of course. But, but the, the you know, subtext that Netanyahu has always been saying, vote for me or die. If you don't vote for me, Iran is going to have a nuclear bomb and throw it on us. I'm the only one who can stop Iran. Right, very quickly, very quickly, where, where are things at right now? Is Netanyahu going to 
pull another rabbit out of the hat here? Because it's pretty chaotic right now. It seems he already have. Uh, and he has um, signed a very, very precarious and unpopular ceasefire. But it creates a situation that paralyzes his political opponents because they cannot outflank him from the right. They can only try to outflank him from the left. The ceasefire could collapse. But um, as long as this tension remains for just a couple more days, uh, I mentioned June 2nd, that's when Yair Lapid loses his opportunity to uh, form a coalition government. It seems if, you know, a snowball's chance in hell for Lapid to, to achieve that. And then... Uh, Netanyahu will stay the prime as prime minister, as interim prime minister, until the next election round. Which means this will be the fifth in, in how long? The fifth in, in the, the span of two years. Uh, and that's just a few more months of survival. And Netanyahu is at a point where he's just playing it a few more months at a time. Crazy. All right. Thanks very much, Shir. We'll, we'll continue this. We'll do a whole nother series. Thank you very much, Paul. So for everybody watching, uh, Shira and I are going to keep having these conversations. Uh, but the next time we do, um, we're going to mostly respond to your questions and comments. So whether it's on YouTube or whether you're on our website at theanalysis.news, uh, I guess Facebook and whatever. Anyway, the best, the best is go to our website at theanalysis.news and do comments. And I'm going to pose them to Shira. Uh, we may add some other speakers sometimes too. Uh, Ali Abunima, I just interviewed recently, and there's others we can add. Uh, so we'll we'll try to play more with with your comments and questions. Uh, don't forget the donate button, the subscribe button, and all the buttons. And thanks very much, and see you again soon.